Aurora is the official hotspot for all things Cornerstone College of Virginia. Each episode will explore controversies, philosophies, and modern-day Christianity through the individual lenses of several Bible college students. It is our hope that these informal discussions will infuse your day with amusement, provoke your mind toward deeper thought, and spread the knowledge of Christ. Welcome back to The Roar. I'm Sam Rhodes, and today we'll be talking about Christ as revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Today, Dylan Pegram will be joining us. He is an educational and biblical scholar, and uh, he will be leading the discussion today. If you're new to the podcast, this is a student-led program hosted at Cornerstone College of Virginia. Each episode focuses on Christ-centered discussion, theology, and life as we dive into biblical topics. Dylan, welcome to The Roar. Thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity to be here just to be able to share um, just kind of the thoughts on Christ in the Old Testament and just to have a discussion. Absolutely. Now, I've been excited about this episode for a while, mainly because I love seeing the connections between the Old and New Testament scriptures, especially with Jesus, who ties everything together. Now, I'll just give you the mic at this point, and we can uh, dive right in. Perfect. What I think is really fascinating is that oftentimes in today's um, evangelical church, we see much more of a focus on New Testament, um, mostly Gospels, when we speak about Jesus, and even a lot of Paul's letters and his epistles, but really not as much a focus on Old Testament um, scholarship and its importance on the promise of Christ. Because we see, even in John 1, which again, I'm quoting a gospel saying, like, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is telling us, I've been here since the beginning. Like, I'm not just, I'm not coming onto the scene brand new, like, hey guys, what's up? He's been around. It's just, we finally get the promise fulfilled, and it's Christ. And so it's fascinating to see how today's churches, like, not that it's wrong, it's just shown less and less this emphasis on Old Testament understanding and also just Old Testament um, view, view of Christ. Like, where is he, you know? And so it's cool to see um, passages like Genesis 3.15. It's, you're going to um, bruise the heel, but he's going to crush your head, as if that's a direct reference to Christ's defeat of Satan. He is going to win. He is going to vanquish and conquer. And just that's one emphasis of the understanding of Christ. He is who is promised. He is who God has said, this is who the plan is about. And now I'm going to tell you the story through all the Old Testament, through these characters, through events, through things. It's the perfect noun. Christ is this noun of being this person, place, and thing represented throughout all of the Old Testament. Dylan, you make a really good point with that. And I want to lead straight into our discussion, talking about some of these uh, personifications you're referencing in the Old Testament of who is Jesus through these examples. Obviously, we have uh, David who represents Jesus and, and other things. So let's let's talk about that. What are some uh, personifications that you think of right away? Well, I like that you mentioned David because oftentimes, going back to, again, the evangelical church, you hear sermons based around how we fit into the story and how we are these powerful characters. And in reality, we're not. 
so David's a great example of this because you see him slay Goliath through the power of the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, being with him and casting that stone at his face and going, he's dead. And oftentimes you hear pastors go, oh, well, you're David, you can conquer your giants, you can conquer Goliath, and that's just not it. What it really shows is that we're Israel. Uh, Matt Chandler said it perfectly. We're the Israelites shaken in fear. We're the Israel just like, what are we supposed to do? And here comes Jesus through David and is able to go, I'm about to slay this giant. Y'all just stay here real quick. And he does exactly what he says he's going to do. And so that's one just minor example of how Christ is revealed through this conquering warrior. Now, I think this also can play into how the Jews of the Pharisees and Sadducees were like, this is why Jesus is not the son of God, because we were promised this warrior king who was supposed to conquer Rome, slay these giants, and then establish his kingdom. And Christ is like, that's not me, at least in this way. And so I think what's interesting is how Christ reveals himself through these characters in just really simple ways. We see how Moses leads Israel out of Egypt through the power of God. Like God is like, you're going to get my people out of here. And the way that you do that is by continually going to Pharaoh. I know Pharaoh's going to say no to you, but you need to keep going. And each time God is being fulfilled and revealed to Pharaoh and his heart's being hardened, and all these things are happening, and yet Moses, being faithful to what he's been told, leads Israel out. And then he leads them in the wilderness. And so what I think, too, we get to this point of, and we think through even in Hebrews, we think of the Hall of Faith, and we think of these characters like Abraham, Sarah, David, Isaac, and this laundry list of characters. But what's fascinating about all these characters is they weren't without sin. They did sin. They were not this perfect redeemer to come and do the work that Jesus was going to do. They were just examples. They were the faithfulness of standing up to these enemies that only God could truly conquer. And then here comes Christ when he finally reveals himself the way he does, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate and is crucified, died, and buried, he is the only true person who can defeat death, defeat sin, and actually come on the scene and do everything that was promised through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, who's saying, like, this guy's coming. And it's, and it again, it's so fascinating, cool, whatever word you want to use, just to see how God's plan is perfectly revealed through the Old Testament of this guy's coming, and then it happens in the New Testament the way it does. And even characters like Jacob, like Jacob changes his name to Israel according to God's plan, like your new name is Israel, and you're about to have 12 sons, and these are the 12 tribes. And just the way the plan is perfectly poured out. God's using these people to eventually bring forth his son. You think about these covenants he makes, and that's somewhere we can kind of dive into next, or the covenants, like Abraham's covenant. Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, and you're going to have Isaac. 
But also, if you think through his story, he had Ishmael. And we think through Ishmael, and Ishmael, his relative, if you keep going down the chain, is Muhammad. And we have Islam based on that. And so we have a completely different religion because of man trying to be like God and make the plan. And then when God reveals himself again and says, this is not how it should be done, let's do it this way, then it's done perfectly. We get Isaac, and then Isaac, we get Jacob, and then through Jacob's lineage, we'll get David. And then through David's lineage, we eventually get Jesus. And we see the royalty, right? Because David's a king. Solomon's a king. And so Christ is not only just the savior of the world, but he's the king of this earth, according to God's establishment of him. And so just how the Old Testament perfectly reveals the plan, just slight bits of it. It's like watching a movie and you get the trailers and the sneak peeks and those little things right before you actually see the entire movie. Christ is the movie, and everything up to that is alluding to him. It reminds me of the passage in Luke 24 that talks about Jesus talking to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're discussing Jesus's death and his alleged resurrection. And so they're talking about the different aspects of this And then Jesus walks up behind them, and they don't recognize him, of course. And he asks, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Yet they stood still, and their faces downcast. And one of them asks him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? But Jesus, this always gets me, he just asks, what things? And they continue to tell him about Jesus himself. And so after they finished telling him about what happened, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then after he explains this to them, their eyes are open and they see that Jesus is king. Jesus is the one that the entire Old Testament is pointing to. And we see that when we read the Old Testament. So we don't have to have been there with Jesus, listening to him, to know what he was talking about. He gave us the Old Testament scriptures, and he gave us the New Testament as evidence proclaiming Jesus' name. That's what the gospel is. So let's look at that. Let's dive in to the Old Testament and see what Jesus was talking about here to these two disciples. What do you have, Dylan? So yeah, I was thinking through this question a little bit, and I really think when we talk about this situation, and he's explaining himself to them, I think you have to start with when he mentions Moses. Because if you remember when Moses is on the mount, and he gets the Ten Commandments, he gets the words from God, and it's like, go down to the people and teach them these things, tell them these things. And we get that whole storyline, the golden calf, throwing down the tablets, this, that, and the other. We get these Ten Commandments, right? And Jesus re-emphasizes these commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's go a little bit further than that. Moses also is the one who helps better establish these burnt offerings. Now, again, we've seen the burnt offerings before in the Old Testament with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even prior to them. But like Moses is helping them set up through the Levites burnt offerings, like to atone for sin. 
And we know that these animal sacrifices are not enough. They're not enough to save the people. Now, they save them momentarily, if you will, or temporarily. They excuse the sin that takes place. But we know that Christ is about to come and fulfill perfectly all sin. Like John 3.16, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then you go into John 17, which I'm going to pull up because that's not the— they always stop at John 3.16 when we were growing up as kids, but they don't keep going into— 317, which I actually find to be a lot more helpful when we understand God's sacrifice on the cross. So, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's saved through him. It's not saved through the sacrifice of the pigeon or of this cow or any of these like animal sacrifices. That's not enough, right? It's through Christ. So when Christ perfectly comes to the cross and he dies, those who choose to believe in him are saved. Those who choose to know who Christ is perfectly are saved. So when Jesus is talking to them on the road to Emmaus, I think that's mentioned. It it must be this idea of like these sacrifices and their importance then and that he came to fulfill this, right? He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to almost like ratify and make it better. He's like, I am the perfection of this. Like Moses's law, David's perfect law and covenant, like Abraham's covenant, these are great. I'm fulfilling them. And so when we look at this conversation and we understand how Christ reveals himself in the Old Testament, he's not only just revealing himself like we've talked about earlier through personification, he's also revealing himself through the perfection of the law through the perfection of the sacrifices. These sacrifices weren't enough. Like they did, again, this momentary thing, but Christ is the perfect sacrifice and he fulfills it. And he's also revealed through certain situations. And again, I think we mentioned this kind of at a pause, but we were talking about how Christ reveals himself. We just can't explicitly say that's Christ. Because oftentimes we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord. And that doesn't always mean that that's Christ. We can maybe allude to it being Christ, but not always. So we have to be real careful. But if you think of the instances with like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then there's this fourth person in the fire, is that Jesus? Is that not? We're not really sure. We can maybe allude to that. Sure, that could be Jesus. But we're again, we don't have perfect clarity on it. But what is true is like in prophecies with Daniel, in prophecies with um, with Isaiah and Jeremiah, and even like uh, Joel and Amos, they're talking about the king who's coming. They are talking about this king, this perfect king, this perfect savior who is coming to fulfill these things and to do them perfectly. Because again, we could list off in the New Testament, Jesus, check this off. Jesus, check this thing off. Jesus, check this thing off. We talk about even too, I'll give an exact example with um, Palm Sunday. Jesus rides on a donkey. If I'm not mistaken, it's Jeremiah. It's either Isaiah or Jeremiah, where it mentions that the king will come riding on a donkey and the palm leaves will be laid before him. And so it's like that specific prophecy fulfilled. And so all that to be said before I keep running around in circles is that Christ is saying, guys, you know what? This character, 
this person, these stories, they're about me. The story's about me. And he's not saying this boastfully. He's saying this almost humbly because, again, I don't want to be the one who has to die on the cross for the whole world's sins. I don't think you would, and many other people wouldn't. Uh, There might be a pride issue in that, like, oh, I can die for my own sins. But really, we can't. We cannot perfectly die for our own sins. Only Christ can fulfill these things. And so understanding the story, talking to these two disciples, they are downcast in their soul because they realize this is the Christ. This is Jesus. This is the one that was promised to us, and this is the one who came to do these things. And that's not something we can take for granted, folks. That's something we have to understand, is that Jesus perfectly could do all these things. We can't. Dylan, I love your passion. I totally agree. But why? How did Jesus fulfill these things that we couldn't? Let's look at those scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about this. That's a great point. Um, I do think when we see Christ fulfilling these things, when we see him actually being the person that's talked about in the Old Testament, one reference that I think of is Isaiah 53. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone on his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like that's clearly Christ. That's not us. Like we are not... again, able by our own strength, our own desire, our own will to be able to do perfectly what Christ has been ordained to do and what Christ is going to fulfill, which is being pierced, being crushed, being chastised, being spat on, being all these things that we see in each gospel towards the end of his time on the cross. Right before that, like Rome tortures him, they put a crown of thorns on him. They do all these horrific things to Christ. And Isaiah was like, yeah, of course they did. This is the guy. This is the person we're talking about. So like, why is an excellent question here. And the the because is this, we couldn't. Like you see here, like this is the Christ. Why is it that Jesus is the one that has to do this? Why is it that Jesus is this perfect blameless example of righteousness and of fulfillment, it's because the prophets through God's inspiration on them is saying, write these things, write about who is to come, my son. And Isaiah gives it perfectly to us here in uh, 53. He's going to die. He is going to the cross, but through his wounds, we're healed. Through his wounds, we have a relationship with God again. We think about the garden. We've thought about 315, right? Hey, Satan, guess what? You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Satan knows he's lost, but he's still going to work to deceive us, to push us against him, and to make us little rebels because of our sinful fallen nature. Yet God, in his love for us, sent his son Christ to die for us, And our prophets that we read by Ezekiel, we read Isaiah, we read Jeremiah, and they say it very clearly, boldly, plainly. Jesus is coming. He is going to die. And through his blood, through his atonement, we have 
healing through him. Hebrews 9 really explains this well. It says, When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all of the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything he used in its ceremonies. Now, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He directly says here that the old covenant and everything in it is a copy of the heavenly things. Now, the Old Covenant was imperfect. He states here that it could not purify heavenly things. It could only purify the copies. This is why he says in verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. What are the better sacrifices? He says in verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. He is the ultimate high priest. If you know about the Old Testament and the ways that the sacrificial system worked, blood was required as a way of forgiveness of sins. And it could only be done with a priest system. And this priest system worked in a way that only the priest could really have any sort of relationship with God. And that relationship was much different in the Old Testament than it is now. And I want to talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But for now, let's read verse 25. He says, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of all the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So I I love the way that this passage really in all of Hebrews brings together the Old Testament and the Old Covenant all of the things of the sacrificial law and the ceremonial law, and we see it's tied together in Jesus, and Jesus does fulfill it. So let's just emphasize the death of Jesus as the replacement for the sacrifice. But let's, in doing that, not forget about the importance of his resurrection and how that is prophesied in the Old Testament, how we do see that Christ needs to resurrect. So so why does he need to resurrect, Dylan? That is an excellent question, and I think a lot of things were covered here really well um, in this passage, one, and give me one second while I sneeze, maybe. No, it's it's not. Did you stop the recording? Because if not, it's fine. I'm cool with it. <laughs> this is the fun part about podcasting. Okay, it went away. So that's weird. Anyway, sorry about that, everyone. Well, here's what I'll say. First, I want to emphasize one specific thing before we go into the purpose of Jesus' death, and it's this. 
He did not do this to offer himself many times as a high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Now, two specific areas that popped in my head that are not rabbit trails, but areas I want to go down real quick. How many high priests do you know sacrifice their own blood? Or how many priests do you know sacrifice themselves for the sins of many? They usually have something to give up, right? Christ sacrificed his own blood. This high priest, Christ, as we know it, is the one who gives his own blood out for his people. Now, again, I don't know many priests who have like cut their own arm or made themselves bleed for this atonement of the sins of the people around them. Christ did that. He is setting himself apart to say, like, I am the great high priest through my blood. There is this reason for you to find salvation in this. So that was one area. The second area that I was thinking about, too, is the idea that if you keep reading through the passage, Christ dies once. We have salvation through him, and it's not something where it's like he's going to continually sacrifice himself for us. This isn't something where I find in a lot of Catholic circles and in more Catholicism mindsets of like, oh, we go for atonement, we say, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, the kind of these sacraments things, and we do this repetitively because we're trying to pay up for something that we've done. That's over with, because Christ died once. He didn't die a multitude of times for us to then say, okay, well, I sinned by stealing this week, and I need to atone for my sin, so Christ is going to die on the cross for me again so my sin can be atoned for. He died once. That event took place. We have record of that event taking place, not only from biblical scholarship, but even like secular scholarship saying, like, Christ died. He died on the cross. Whether they believe who he is really is not the point. The point is that this is an account that took place, an event that took place. So when we see this, we see this understanding that Christ died once, and that's significant, because by his death happening one time, it shows that it was perfect. Because why would you want to have Christ sacrifice himself multiple, multiple, multiple times if it didn't perfectly work the first time, right? Like, if you want to see your sins um, forgiven, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, trust in God, trust in who Christ is. That's it. There's nothing else to that. There's no and, oh, and this thing. It's not like what the Judaizers of old were saying, like, yeah, you can believe in who Jesus is, but don't forget you have to be circumcised, Gentiles, or don't forget you have to do this thing too. It's one thing. It's one event. It's one situation. Christ's death's importance, its significance is a fulfillment of something that we as human beings couldn't do. Now, when I think of this passage, if anyone had to die multiple times for their sins, I would. I sin every day. I sin constantly. And if I didn't have a Savior who redeemed me from that sin, I would have to get a sacrifice every day for all the sins that I've accounted for a day. You know, like I'm not perfect, but God is. Christ is. And so when we see that perfect death take place, we also see a perfect example with Abraham. Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. He clearly knew two things to be true. One, God promised him that he would be the father of many nations. And that God even said before the sacrifice, this would be done through Isaac. He had faith in two specific ways. Either 
there would be a sacrifice, which we do foresee happen through the sacrificial ram, or that he would kill Isaac and that God may resurrect him. That is a possibility. I remember a professor of mine at school saying, like, Abraham had faith. He knew his God. He knew that Isaac being put on this altar to be sacrificed, it was an act of faith. This is the same guy who in his old age with his wife were able to bear a child, and that was Isaac. They were promised this. And God's now saying, okay, I need you to go sacrifice him. And Abraham saying, without saying, really, Lord? I have to go sacrifice this person you just promised me? He says, all right, we'll get ready and we'll go up and we'll go to the mountain. I'll sacrifice him right now. What faith that takes to say, okay. And it's not this like second thought of, isn't this a person you just promised would make me the father of many nations? Abraham had faith. And so then God provides the sacrificial lamb. Who is that sacrificial lamb? Christ. Christ's blood, Christ's death, Christ's atonement is perfect for us. Now, in that example, we see a ram that does, for that moment, its job perfectly. And we get the view, us as readers now, that that's the Christ that is to come. This sacrificial lamb is about to shed his blood for all of us. And so, why is Christ's death so important? Why his death? One, because that was God's plan. That's how he wanted to do it. Now, could he have had Jesus come down as a raging king? Absolutely. That's what the Judaizers and the Jews of the time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, that's what they wanted. But that wasn't God's plan. That's not how it worked. Secondly, we just see examples of these things take place, again, through the prophets that we've mentioned in this podcast up to this point. God had a plan. God reveals the plan slightly to each of these prophets. He reveals a piece, right? He gives them a section of this perfect plan that will be fulfilled through the virgin birth and through Christ's coming. And so this death is significant because it's not something I could do for myself. It's not something that any human being could do for themselves. You can't just say, I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to die for my own sins. Like we're told to take up your cross and follow Christ. But we really can't do that apart from Christ. We must have him. Man, I love how you just keep jumping back to Romans. I really wish this was a New Testament discussion, but it's not. So we're going to talk about the Old Testament still. Let's talk about the resurrection of Christ. Let's see what the Old Testament talks about and I mean, if we had the time, I'd love to jump into all of the prophets and all of the Old Testament and see how Christ is revealed, but that would take many, many days, and uh, unfortunately, we don't have the time for that. So, uh, Dylan, I'll give the mic back to you. And as fun as that podcast would be, you'd basically have to dictate a podcast for each one. You'd have to do like a Isaiah one and a Jeremiah one and just like bounce them off. But let's talk about resurrection and its understanding of it, not only as a power, as a miracle, like this is something that God gives as a way to reveal more of himself, like it is a miracle, but it's also, it's God solely, like it's something that he is doing. So when I think about the examples of like literal resurrections that take place in the Old Testament, some examples that popped in my head, like Elijah prays and God raises a young boy from death in the passage 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, which I'm actually going to read real quick. 
and I want to camp out there for a second because I think it's clear for us to better understand resurrection as something that belongs to the Lord. It's not something that um, we do. Like, it's not something that is done by our own strength. It's something that God does. The son of the woman who owned the house became ill, and his illness got worse until he stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, man of God, what do you have against me? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? But Elijah said to her, give me your son. So he took him from her arms, brought him to the upstairs room, and when he was... And when, when, where he was staying, tongue tied, and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, The Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? And then he stretched himself out over the body three times. Three times. Think about that number. And he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord my God, please let the boy's life come into him again. And so the Lord listened to Elijah, and the boy's life came into him again, and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upstairs room into the house, and gave him to his mother. Your son is alive. And then she, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you're a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. That's just a story, a snippet of God's power. God resurrects, right? Elijah knows this. He says, Lord, have you caused judgment on, my, on this household that I'm staying with? And he says, Lord, let this boy live again. It goes back to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, which we don't really have time to cover because this is an Old Testament podcast, not New Testament. But what I'll say is this. He knows where the power comes from. It's not him. It's from God. It is God's power to resurrect. And so when we think about how Christ's resurrection is symbolic and important, it's something that God gives. It's his power. And God, Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son is resurrected. He is doing this because he is of God. He is God. And we see this perfectly displayed in the Gospels. He descended to the dead. I think of the Apostles' Creed. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven he is seated at the right hand of the Father. These instances, right? They show the perfection of God. They show his power because he is the one who does this. He is burying Christ. He is the one who breathes life back into Christ because Christ again is God. It's not that Christ is human in the same way like Lazarus in the New Testament. Lazarus come out. All of a sudden, Lazarus comes out. Christ did that because of the power of God. God's power on on Christ, he is able to resurrect. And so without me going in too many circles, resurrection is God's. It is for God to display and ordain according to his will. As he does this, Elijah knew that about God. Abraham, like we mentioned earlier, knew that about God to a point where he was like, Isaac might die here, but I know that God is faithful. And we know that God's power is everlasting. We also know that God's power is limitless. And he can do this according to his will. But now we got to look at the second part of the understanding of the resurrection. Like this resurrection and how it is 
poured out in the Old Testament and how we kind of see it in the New Testament, it's important to know when Christ resurrects, this is everything fulfilled in Genesis 3.15. This is everything that's fulfilled through the prophets. Like this is God's power poured out, and it shows that Jesus's claims in the Gospels are backed up by the Old Testament. The things that took place, the events, the people, all these things are fulfilled. It's God, Christ Jesus, who has said, I am the same phrase that Moses, when he speaks to the burning bush, who are you? I am. He uses this phrase. He references the Old Testament, right? He knows the scriptures. This is the same Jesus at the age of 12 who says to his parents, I was in my father's house. Like, he knows it. And so when we see the resurrection take place and why we can understand this from an Old Testament standpoint, it's knowing that Christ does exactly what he claims to do in the Old Testament. He came to not only fulfill the law. He came to save his people. He came to die for us and then to resurrect. And then again, we don't have time for this podcast because I'm the Old Testament guy. They're going to get a New Testament guy. But then we see in the New Testament, like Revelations talks about this conquering and how we see Christ conquering death, defeating sin, defeating Satan. Like that's important. And that's going to be fulfilled again. This is the crushing of the head, the bruising of the heel. Genesis 3, we've said it through this whole podcast. That moment from God to Satan, like, woe to you, serpent, who is the cunning of the animals. Jesus is coming. From the woman, Christ will come, and he will crush you. That fulfillment takes place when Jesus resurrects. And it's perfect. It's something only he can do. I love the emphasis on only Christ. Only Jesus can do these things. He's the only one who can fill the law. And so one of the aspects of the law that we see that needs to be fulfilled is this. In Jeremiah 31, it talks about how God is going to make a new covenant. One of the things he says is this. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. So we look at this and we say, how do we know the Lord? What in the old Testament is talking specifically to this aspect of Jesus Christ, fulfilling a relationship that we have with the Lord. Dylan, what does that look like? I think in the old Testament, the way we see knowing the Lord is following the commandments. Like, God perfectly gave Moses Ten Commandments to follow. And through those Ten Commandments in books like Deuteronomy, um, Numbers, more laws are written to help those laws, right? And so we see that really what it plays into is knowing God and understanding His commandments brings forth a relationship Now we see in the New Testament where that changes a little bit. It's about the relationship. Now what I want to point to in this specific portion of the Old Testament is I'm going to say that not only is it about knowing the commandments, not only is it knowing the law, it's actually having a relationship with Christ and with God. 
Now, again, we don't know Christ explicitly yet in the New Testament. We only have pictures of him. But with that known, we also understand that God wants a relationship with us. He's wanted a relationship with us since Adam and Eve in the garden until they distorted it. He wanted a relationship with his people even after that, even after sin entered into the world. He wanted a relationship with Adam and Eve and their descendants. He cast them out of the garden. And I think I thought about this example recently in um, chapter three. He does it to spare them in a lot of ways because he wants a relationship with his people. He created them, right? And so as we continue on through the scriptures, we also see how he wanted a relationship with Israel. Israel's in captivity many, 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 many times. During the time of Moses, during the time of Joshua, during the time of the kings, like Israel gets captured quite a bit. Does that mean God has forgotten them? No, he's still trying to be with them. But when they sin, when they fall short, their punishment is fulfilled. Cana, or the Canaanites take them. The men, like these ites, all the ites, if you will. Conquer them at certain points. Babylon, Egypt. But God still loves his people and doesn't give up on them. And an area that I really want to camp out in and talk about that in a little bit more detail is Hosea. Because Hosea is just fantastically written, number one. But two, how many men who might be listening to this podcast, if you were told you're going to go marry a harlot and she's going to keep like having relations with other people, but you still have to love her as your wife, would you go do that? Probably not. Yet that's Hosea's whole job, his whole calling. And in verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Oz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, son of Jeshua, king of Israel. The Lord spoke to Hosea and said, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Hosea's primary goal, according to God's will, is go marry a harlot, a prostitute, and have kids with her. That will be from a prostitute. And then the whole rest of the book talks about how you're going to name these kids certain names, and they're going to be examples of my judgment. They're going to be examples of my power and my wrath. But we also have to see something very clear here. We see some personification here, right? Hosea is the perfect example of who Jesus is. And we're the bride. We're the promiscuous harlot. We as the church often, more than we should, find other things to worship besides God. That's the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. But let's focus here on the old. Because what we see right now between God and his people is a broken relationship. There's a broken relationship between us because we are causing it and God wanting to fix it is doing everything that we cannot do to fix it. God perfectly is fixing it the way he sees and we keep screwing it up. Now the time has not come yet, but Christ is coming and he's going to perfectly fix it. He's going to ratify it. And as we believe in him, we will have perfect salvation and eternal life in him. But until then, we only have this broken relationship that is if we keep keep following the commandments, if we keep following the law, if we keep the sacrifices, we can have 
a right relationship with God. Think of Job prior to his testing between Satan and God, between the chess mass, right? He is praying for not only himself, but his kids. And he is giving burnt sacrifices for himself and his children to say, Lord, not only am I paying for my own sins through these, but also the sins of my children. And why is that important in understanding the relationship between ourselves and God? It's to understand that it was possible. It was difficult. It was challenging. And it was something that we couldn't really do well unless God was the person leading it. Unless God was actually orchestrating and ordaining it according to his will. Hosea being asked to marry a harlot, a prostitute. That's a really tough thing to be asked. Yet, faithfully, he still does it. And then we get to see the perfect picture of Israel's sin, their wickedness, their lack of love for their God, their easy swaying to other gods, all these things. And what does that show about us as human beings in today? As we can read this Old Testament passage, we can also say, man, that's us. I'll shoot straight. Like, I spend more time on my phone probably than reading my Bible every day. And that's wrong. Now, does that mean I beat myself up about it? No, but that does mean you make a change. And having a right relationship with God looks like actually trying to have one with him. And that's something Israel really wasn't doing at this point. They didn't want to have a relationship with God. They were okay um, marrying Moabites, Canaanites, all these other ites. They were cool with that. And these prophets come along and they're like, hey, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is coming. And so what we really get a picture of in this perfect relationship, it's distorted, it's broken, and it's messed up, and that's our fault. It's our sin. It's our messing up that is causing this relationship to get worse and worse. Again, God is doing everything. He is perfect. He is foundational for our understanding. And unless you're pursuing him, you can't know him. A relationship is what you put into it. And if you're not putting anything into it, then what's the purpose? And that's true in marriage. So understand that God, this perfect bridegroom, is giving us, the bride, everything. Gold, silver, these white robes, this all-perfect thing. And instead of following that and saying, yes, I submit to this, every day we choose to sin and we choose to go against him. Now, can we repent and be saved? Absolutely. But that takes us understanding what that looks like. And God talks about this with Hosea, specifically in chapter 6, starting in verse 6. He says, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, Hosea was given to us and the Israelites at the time as an example of how God felt. God obviously did not feel happy did not feel like he was being treated faithfully, with faithful love. People claimed, yes, I love you, but as a prostitute, they set it to his face and then turned around and in his face sold themselves as a prostitute, tore off their righteous clothing, and still God took them back. He loved them continuously. He loves us. And yet, what did Israel think was the solution? What did they do? They brought sacrifice to God with an impure heart. 
They said, I am sorry that I sinned against you. Here is the blood of a bull, whatever it may be. And then the next day, they would do the very same thing. And this we see is a continuation. This is why we need a new covenant, right? In the Old Testament, there is a need for something new, something better. And God says it up front. He says, there is something better. And he says, I do not desire sacrifice. I desire faithful love. But right now, in your state, in the old covenant, this is not possible. Because you cannot love me. No matter how much I love you, you do not love me. This is something that just should bring tears to our eyes. Because we know that this is us. But for those who know Christ, this should be a huge joy because this is the solution. This is Christ is the solution. He gives us that ability to love God, to be like him, to stop turning away in prostitution, to stop turning to the evil, sinful ways of the world, to please God in repentance. And so, Dylan, you have a great passage that talks about this in the Old Testament. You want to read that? I do, because I think everything that you've said leads up to the point understanding that God is love, God wants love, and we really can't give it to him yet. Like we can't give him the love, the adoration, the things that he deserves because we don't really know how to yet. And when Jesus comes, he shows us better how to like actually love him, to love God, to follow his word, to actually not just keep the commandments because they're trying to like stay clean, but to actually keep the commandments because you have actual love for God and for his word. And so David, the man after God's own heart, the man who God consistently was like, you're a man after my own heart. Even this guy who killed Uriah and took Bathsheba, God still was like, you're a man after my own heart. He says this, ready? Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. So hopeful because this is a guy who, again, he wasn't perfect. We're not perfect. We don't know perfection the way God and Jesus do. Yet he asks, Lord, my heart's dirty. I'm filthy. I am a harlot sinner, piece of garbage. And I need you to create in me a clean heart. Creating in him a clean heart is something that God only does. And I know I've said that a lot on the podcast, but I'll say it again. God creates the clean heart. God creates the clean heart in him. He renews a steadfast spirit within him. He doesn't take his spirit away. He gives the joy of salvation and sustains him by giving a willing spirit God is doing that. It's not what we can do. It's God through us. And so finally, let's close up this podcast episode with returning to the end result of this love, this relationship. What is the point of this fulfillment of the, the, the old covenant, the, the new covenant and the, the promises that are being fulfilled here? What is the purpose? The purpose is that God's love is for you. God's love is more powerful, more sustaining than anything on this human earth. 
it is more powerful than the wickedness and sin and deceit of this world. It is the love that only God can give you. David knew it. The prophets knew it. Jesus showed it, not only as being the perfect bridegroom to his bride, but also as just being a sacrificial lamb for his people. His blood was poured out so that we could have a right relationship of love with him. Because again, God is love. And I love that, again, in our evangelical churches, we like to say that the God of the Old Testament is this angry, wrath-filled, just judgmental God. And that the God of the New Testament is all about love and just all about the good. But have you ever read in the New Testament how God is the one who talks mostly about hell and about judgment and is more hellfire and brimstone than Paul is, more hellfire than brimstone than any of the prophecies in Revelation even. He's the one saying, guess what? If you don't repent, this is your judgment. And then if we look into the Old Testament, what do we see? God's love. God's love is present. God wanted love, right? He wanted love to be the plan. He knew it couldn't be yet. And he knew that Jesus was going to be the one that could only bring forth what that truly perfectly looked like. And so finally, I'd like to conclude with just the hope, the hope of Christ that's given in the Old Testament. And we see this in so many places. We see it in Ezekiel with the dry bones. We see it in the very beginning in Genesis when Adam and Eve are given this hope of eternal life, right? So what is that hope as revealed in Old Testament scriptures? I'd like to give you the mic for this because you were really passionately talking about the uh, eternal resurrection of the of the dead the day of the lord in the context of like dry bones and those things so uh, what are you what do you have to say on those things i really think when we look at the coming christ his second coming the dry bones being renewed these ideas and aspects of revelation that are even teased for us in Daniel and Jeremiah. It's a hope that we can't fathom yet because we're still very much tied up in the things of this world. Even though we have a relationship with Christ and we're thankful for that, even though we're able to know who he is differently than those of the old Testament, we really can't understand and fathom fully yet what is actually going to come, right? Like this perfect love, this steadfast love is something that's unfathomable to us. There is a song. I like it, but I I always want to change one word from it. It's actually Reckless Love by Bethel. I think it's Bethel, where it's like the reckless love of God. And I like changing the word reckless to perfect, and here's why. Because when we think of reckless it almost seems uncoordinated. It seems random, but God isn't really random in what he does. He has a plan. He's perfect in what he does. So when God is renewing salvation, when God is showing us what the plan should have been and what he wants it to look like, it's perfect, not reckless, right? It's a perfect love for him. And so when we look at these ends, the dry bones will cry out, 
everyone will know who he is, even if they are on his side or not. We will all bow our knee to know that he is the king. And those who know who he is, we will have the hope knowing that we're about to live in an eternity with him forever. And that's fantastic. I'd like to conclude with Ezekiel 7, verses 12 through 14. He says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says. I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of The Roar. Feel free to sign up for our bi-weekly podcast newsletter found in the description. And check out our website at cornerstonecollegeva.org.